Minty Longreth and Naomi Ishisaka were the co-founders and editors of the former magazine Colors Northwest. We discussed their careers in journalism, toxic masculinity and entrepreneurship, and lessons learned. Enjoy. What's up, everybody? I go by the name of Domo. And I go by the name of Yoshiko. We sit with entrepreneurs and artists across disciplines to share their stories, insight, and gems. Their journey will inspire you to think about community and your own narrative, how it shapes who you are, and what your legacy will be. You're listening to No Blueprint. No Blueprint. No Blueprint. No Blueprint. You are listening to No Blueprint. Well, it's good to be here. I am Minty Longearth. I am Santee Creek and Choctaw, and I'm also a descendant from African-American, Irish, Scottish, and Latinx people, and I'm a Seattleite. Glad to be here. All right. Naomi Ishisaka. I'm a native Seattle person as well, a longtime journalist. I do a lot of photography, communications work, and graphic design in the Seattle area, and my particular interest is in race and social justice. Nice. Naomi, you said you were a you've you were born in Seattle? Yep, Tell born and raised. Tell me more. Yeah, so I grew up in the north end of Seattle, but it was in the era of busing. So I was bused to Garfield for high school and that was a really transformative part of my life in Seattle. Nice. Yeah. Say more about that, because we've we've interviewed some folks who went to Garfield and I think that from what I know, people really enjoy being a bulldog and they take a lot of pride in being a bulldog. Mm-hmm. But I've also heard about the other side of Garfield of who gets to be on the first floor Mm -hmm. and who gets to be on the second floor. Yeah. No, that's real. I think I was in school at Garfield in the early 90s. Mm. And back then, Seattle was really different than Mm -hmm. it is now. Mm -hmm. So our school was very slightly majority black, but the school itself was very much like you said. There was like definitely tracks that created segregation in the school that was very stark i think my my window into it was really unique in that i was in some of the classes that were segregated in that way but then i was also like in other classes where i was definitely like one of the only non-black students in the mm-hmm. class and so that gave me a window into like lots of different aspects of the school and i think really informed how I kind of saw the world after that and, mm-hmm. and the perspective that I brought to the rest of, you know, my my life. Nice. And then how many generations has your family been in Seattle? How many generations? I mean, my parents moved here. So okay. my dad was actually a professor at the school of social work at UW for nice. like 30 plus years. Wow. Yeah. So he was kind of one of the first people to bring ethnic studies focus into the school social work Wow! way awesome. back in like the early 70s and my parents met in social work school in Berkeley in the 60s okay. and then came here in the early 70s and then okay. and then came me and then you know the rest was like okay Minty where were you born? I was born in Seattle at King County Hospital which is now Harborview and I was a product of adoption pre-Indian Child Welfare Act of 1974. I was adopted out in 1968. So my birth mother came up here from Alabama by way of Lakeland, Florida. And she 
went ahead and relinquished me up here because my uh, birth grandparents were actually up here working on the oil pipeline as migrant workers. So Uh lots of Southern people were doing that, especially Southern people when the mills and the picking bottomed out in the late 60s. So I was a product of relationship that produced me and I was placed for adoption here and then lived here until 1982 and then moved down to Southern California and was living in Pomona and that area until 95 and then came back here. Okay. When did, where did you go to high school? I went to high school at San Dimas High School. And if you're too young to remember, but if you ever saw a movie, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, mm-hmm. I went to San Dimas High School, dude. You said you saw you saw the movie? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. And it looked exactly like that. Oh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was it. So what year did you, I guess, what year did you come up here to live for the first time after high school? 1995. Okay. And that was like after you had graduated? or Oh, yeah. No, I had two daughters, one during high school and one right after I graduated from high school. And I did not want them to think that what life was like. By then, we were living in Fontana, and I didn't want them to think that was normal. I didn't want them to think that it was normal to fight people based on their race. race, Mm. And I didn't think that it was normal for the level of of crime that they were exposed to in my neighborhood and I really thought that you know at least in Seattle they would have an opportunity to have relationships with their family that don't look like them they would be able to go to school and wear red or blue or black if they wanted to I I had raised them going to the library and I'd be the only person in the library that looked like me Mm. and I wanted them to see like the mountains and you know the water and opera and ballet and you know art and they were smart kids so saved up and you know came up here and then Naomi what did you do after high school so when I was in high school I had a teacher who encouraged me to um he he saw I was really interested in writing and he saw that I was really quiet but when I wrote I like had a lot of thoughts that he didn't really see me express in class because I was pretty introverted and pretty shy. So he encouraged me to be part of the journalism program at Garfield. And so I started doing that um, and then got involved in a program that was run by the Seattle Times at the time to get uh, students of color involved in, in journalism in newspapers called the Urban Newspaper Workshop. And I did that and it really kind of like helped me see a path in journalism that I didn't previously really see because I didn't really know anyone who had done that kind of work but it introduced me to a lot of different mentors and people as well as provided like a kind of a boot camp training on basic journalism skills and techniques. I went to Evergreen and they didn't really have a journalism program per se but I kind of created my own sort of journalism program there coupled with ethnic studies and became involved in the newspaper at at Evergreen and was very conscious of the fact that they didn't have like a J school, any kind of thing like that. So I started doing a lot of different internships um, to try to get more skills and worked at a pretty much most of the Puget Sound newspapers for, you know, several years and really started getting more skills in like mainstream newspaper work on the editing side. And yeah, and then really just fell in love with journalism and news and Reporting and all the things that were associated with it. Nice. Tell me the backstory of how it got started and how you both uh, got involved with Colors Northwest. Mm. Oh, Minty Girl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Yeah. This would be my memory of how I got started. <laughs> so, Naomi, myself, and another founder, we were all working at the Seattle Times. Naomi and I met at the Seattle Times in our new employee orientation. And I just was smitten, like, immediately because she had edited in college a book that when I moved up here, I was so, like, fascinated by because I hadn't gone to college. And I was just like, oh, my God. And so when she was talking about all these books at her orientation, she mentioned these books. I was like, I got to know her. And we connected. And then as the months progressed, the other partner who was in management, and we were not in management, we were union, there was the beginnings of a strike. And Naomi at 24, were you 24? Wow. At 24, Naomi was like, deuces, I'm about to do this on, on behalf of, you know, the labor union. It was fascinating because I was in marketing, so I got to watch it from being a spider on the wall without being in the middle. I wasn't management, you know, and so it was so interesting to watch this, like, war battle on. And, and the partner that was still in management started saying there's not a place for you know what we want to do like we don't want to compete with them but we definitely want to start telling stories that are relevant and so we started talking through because he was my partner in life and so we started talking through what that would look like and he wanted one thing and I wanted one thing and we kind of landed in the middle but I said to him, you know, he said, we need an editor-in-chief. And I was like, you've got to you've got to get with this, this badass. Like, you've got to see what she can do. And they connected right away. And when we started looking at funding, we had people telling us, nobody's going to want to read this. This is not going to go anywhere. And we had Asunta Ng say oh, this is going to go everywhere, and I will put ads about your magazine in my newspaper, which is unheard of for a publication to advertise another publication. From that endorsement alone, from that endorsement alone, we ended up having uh, Macy's agree to be the bond. Were they still the bond back then? The bond yeah, washing. They yeah, they decided they to be the first inside ad full page. Wow. And that, of course, then meant people started like going okay we'll advertise with you you take it over from there back in 2000 there was a pretty well there was a pretty serious labor dispute within the seattle times i was on the executive board of the union at, for the newspaper guild you know strong labor supporter advocate an activist and there was a move to try to get more benefits and salary for a certain segment of the Seattle Times staff. And so that led to a strike, which was a pretty brutal, brutal period, which led to basically as we were coming back, because I was just very new to the newspaper, as that led to coming back to the newspaper after the strike ended, they basically told me that I either had to quit Colors Northwest at which I was doing while I was waiting to come back to work and wasn't getting paid for it. It was just something I was doing while I was waiting to come back. Or I had to quit the Seattle Times. Those are the two choices that I was given. And we decided, the union and I decided that we were going to do a grievance and then later led to an arbitration over the fact that they were telling me that Colors Northwest in its infancy was a competing publication <laughs> to the Seattle Times wow. because we had an advertiser like... We had like $2,000 and then we were there for like a competition to the Seattle Times. 
and and you are a threat we in to the, the establishment. Yeah, we in the union were just like, you got to be kidding me! Like that's ridiculous. You know, yeah. you know, we don't have anything. Right. We have a bunch of people that are volunteering and hope that you know it'll become to something because we care about what we're doing. Mm. But a threat to the Seattle Times, like that's that's a stretch. You right. know. So needless to say, I chose Colors Northwest, which you know was scary. It was scary to be young and had worked my whole career up to that point to get to the Seattle Times. That was kind mm-hmm. of my goal and my dream. And I got there and, and then ended up like on strike and ended up, you know, leaving and starting mm-hmm. this incredible risk, um, beautiful risk that married the two things I love the most, like journalism and race and social justice, together into one entity. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty much a dream come true. It was like everything I'd ever wanted, like all wrapped up into one package. Mm-hmm. Explain Colors Northwest to folks that, that either weren't there or just haven't heard of it. Colors Northwest was the first of its kind. It was four-color glossy, full-color glossy, and... It was a magazine that didn't just do the regular Benetton colors kind of thing, <laughs> uh, which was all that there was out yeah. there back then. Um, it literally was looking at community in a different lens of how we tell stories. I had been a published poet and playwright since I was eight, but I had never been a journalist other than working for the Times. and. So I I had the passion for writing and for telling the story, but I didn't have the professional background. And Naomi had the professional background and had been blocked by, you know, basic access because of what was going on with the strike. And then the other partner had the management um, background. Um, We all had significant community ties that were being underutilized. Um, Our contacts were, I don't think we even realized how connected we were until the magazine, you know, like exploded after three months. Colors was meant to let people figure out how rich community was by how much there was that you didn't know about. Even having like our food section, which just became legendary, Mm -hmm. and being able to spotlight companies and organizations and efforts that nobody was talking about back then. Naomi certainly brought a level of discipline in terms of the quality of production, because we would look at other publications and you would see, you know, like a real good attempt at writing, an honest attempt at editing, you know, a a good attempt at, you know, lighting and photography. We held our standards to a much higher level. We wanted people to collect our magazine issues, and they did. We wanted you to walk down the street and wait for the day that we were releasing the next episode uh, issue, and they did. Mm. And we did it with bare bones. We had nothing. Our first cover had my cousin Leilani with her basketball, and I did her makeup, and (laughs) Naomi found somebody to shoot her, and, you know, we did it at El Centro de la Raza, and, you know, like, and that cover to this day is like this cover that people have framed on their walls. Wow. We were the first to talk about Two Spirits in any publication, in wow. anywhere. We just, we became this kind of groundbreaking thing. When 9-11 hit, our publication was what people looked to for the real human stories that were going on. Mm. Yeah, and I would say, like, one of the things that I'm really proud of about the magazine was that before people started talking about intersectionality, mm. it was intersectional. Mm-hmm. So coming at it from a lens that was very deeply rooted in communities of color, we were very clear that we weren't there to just do the feel good, like everyone, you know, pat each other on the back about how 
diverse we were, you know, mm-hmm. quote unquote. It was around, you know, some of the stuff that I was most proud of was things like the Two-Spirit cover that we did or the stories about homophobia, the stories that really forced people to look at the ways in which we as communities of color were not necessarily living up to the idea of a beloved community that we like to talk about when Martin Luther King Day rolled around, right? <laughs> yeah. One of the stories that I was really proud of was a was a story about just that. We brought together a bunch of faith leaders and asked them about what they thought. This was when George W. Bush was elected the second time. Mm. And a lot of the reason why people said that he was elected was because there was a sort of revolt in some communities of color to reject gay rights initiatives. Um, And so we brought these faith leaders together to ask them, like, what would, what do you think is, is the role of faith communities? What do you think would be what the path that a leader like MLK would bring to this conversation? And they were brutally honest and they were very, very challenging. And even though they were faith leaders, they were very, very tough on our own communities and just Mm. being like, who do we want to be? Who are we to each other? Mm. You know, what can we do to be better to each other? And it was a really tough conversation and it rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. It was basically calling out homophobia in our own communities in a really tough way. But it was also like the kind of conversation where a lot of people were like, I feel seen for the first time in my life. Like, I feel like I can actually be this and that and somebody actually sees that in me. Right. So it's really, really powerful. And I think that's the area that we really pushed boundaries and really excelled because anyone can do like we we always said, like, we're not going to be like the festivals, you know, like type of publication. We weren't just going to do the fun, like children dancing in their native garb sort of festival thing. Right. We were going to get beyond that and ask hard questions and tough questions of each other and ourselves to hopefully get to a better place, a better level. And we quickly expanded because then it became not just people wanting to hear the stories, but they wanting us to facilitate opportunities. And so we found that we were expanding into bringing to light, like we, you know, we had like town hall with a comic night and we had all these comedians of color Mm -hmm. that were, you know, being marginalized from the entertainment up here. We definitely started to put our hand into trainings because a lot of us had a training background and so we were doing a lot of equity training before there was equity training. Um, Mm. Some of the curriculums that we developed, nobody had ever been talking about. And then that became us to morph into, okay, let's also add a portal for people who are interested in walking their talk when they say we want to hire from a diverse pool of candidates. Well, then why aren't you interacting in our community in a real way and so we we just sort of got bigger and bigger based on what the community would come to us with their needs about so it was an interesting morph how was the magazine uh colors northwest distributed we had a robust distribution we were in what do you call them the boxes what do we call those boxes um street Boxes? Yeah, yeah, street boxes. I used to pick up copies from the Red Apple. Yes, we had a good nice. deal with Red Apple. Yeah. That's legit. Yeah, and we were all over. And, and then, like, different storefronts and things like that, too. There mm-hmm. was, like, the boxes and then storefronts and then organizations, things like that would have stacks of them. Nice. Yeah, libraries. Yeah. And, like, medical offices, things like that. That's Very crazy. accessible areas. We, we um, spent a lot of time researching where those best locations would be. Wow. What month and year was the first issue? April 2001. Wow. 
April Fool's Day. We did <laughs> April yes. Fool's Day. Nice. Was and that we had our school? we had our launch at Awajamaya. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's yep. super awesome. Everything we did was intentional. Everything. How big was the staff? Oh. <laughs> at what time? At what time? In yeah. the beginning. Oh, small. Yeah, you. Very small. It. <laughs> the photographer. Yeah, not Voldemort. Um, <laughs> four to five. Was it five? Yeah, but but in terms of like, that was like wasn't full time staff. Right, and and okay. again we weren't no, making any money. And you said you we weren't, weren't making any money. No, okay. we nobody paid. was getting paid. We no. were in my basement of our house. We were oh, in wow. the basement. She had her office in the basement of the house. Wow. And yeah, we we were in the basement for the first two years. We didn't even go wow. storefront until then. When did when did you start getting paid? Oh god, that was a while. Mm-hmm. April, I think. Cause just the printing costs alone. Yeah. Like, can you imagine like yeah. trying to be a buy and for a commuse of color right. print publication monthly yeah just the print costs alone were huge right yeah so yeah, it's been a long time but i think the first two paychecks were you and the gm and they were like a fraction of they were like a hope you can get some coffee <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was pretty much like that. It was pretty bad, wow. and that probably wasn't until well, it was after the nine eleven. So I don't think you got paid until that October when we got we got some significant. And advertising. It started on April probably. Fool's Day. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. What are you doing? And we're talking. We're talking like sixty, seventy, eighty hours a week. Easy. I was wow. Because we were working constantly. We're talking constantly. We were everything was wow. just obsessive. Was just starting up. I was receiving unemployment for. Oh, okay. Part of that. okay. So that was covering my basic living expenses. Obviously, my income had declined significantly. Right. And I think that was like one of the biggest lessons that I took from that experience was like, even though I'd been sort of conservative and cautious about all my different career moves mm. and was like very, you know, deliberate and systematic about like, I do this and I get that internship and I do that. And then, mm. you know, eventually I'll work at the Seattle Times and everything will be great. This did not follow that playbook at all. <laughs> this was like jumping off a cliff mm-hmm. with no parachute, no right. guarantee of survival. It was just like a really, if you were to look at it objectively, yeah. a really bad career oh, choice. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. what made you, what, what What? was it for you that made you like give so much of your time to this? Well, I mean, as I said, it was like a dream come true. It was like it was like marrying the two things that I love the most, right? right. You know, like so when I was passion. in college, I was like, you know, ethnic studies major and a journalism major, right? right? So you like take the two things I'm most passionate about, and it wasn't even it wasn't even possible right. in my the world that I understood. Right. Right. Like I knew that when you go into newspapers, you have to make a lot of sacrifices in terms of like the things that you care about versus the mm-hmm. things that you're working on. Right. And that's just the way life is. And I was, I had accepted that. Right. Um. And then here's this thing that's like, actually, you know, I was describing it to someone actually last night and I was like, when I was working in newspapers, it was like always pushing against the tide. It was like the things that I valued and cared about constantly pushing against the tide, trying Absolutely. to get a little bit further, a little bit further, a little bit further. Okay. And then at Colors and Quest, it was like the tide was actually moving in my direction for the yeah. first time. Yeah. It was like 
going my way yeah and people that actually understood where i was coming from and and had a shared sense of values and shared sense of beliefs yeah around what we need to do as a community to move forward and so that all together was just like you know an offer i couldn't refuse Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. didn't refuse i was gonna say it's almost like why we while while we're here yeah Mm -hmm. sitting in this really hot room (laughs) 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 we'd like to say we haven't done this but yeah Yeah. we've actually done this (laughs) (laughs) been there been there and that was another thing that we you know i think we often told people after that was just like don't get caught up with the trappings of or what you Mm -hmm. think you know successes right like we could be in a basement working on you know Capping computers or whatever it is that you need to do and that's not what it's about right i remember person who should not be named would say like if it doesn't matter what your kitchen looks like as long as your dinner table is clean right Mm. and that was really our philosophy it was just like the product we produce is going to be professional it's going to have integrity it's going to have quality it's going to respect the the very parts of our humanity as communities of color but how we got there mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know it's not gonna be like downtown class a office space right it's just not right. and that's okay it doesn't matter right. that kind of stuff doesn't matter right yep. how did y'all know that y'all had something oh man we knew pretty quickly yeah when we say it exploded it did because we didn't have the expectations of this coming out and just, you know, being what it was. We knew it was possible, but we had so many naysayers and there was no there was no blueprint for it and I hey, hey. You're welcome. Hey. And, uh, <laughs> let, me, let me pick that up. Right. All right. And um, you were saying <laughs> I think everybody knew at a different time, but I think when I knew was when Naomi and he who shall not be named were invited about four months in they were invited to um, Unity and I think for me as a marketing person that's when I knew we were a force to contend with because we were still a startup we really but it was other journalists who were like yo this right here Mm -hmm. this is something and so when they started getting invitations to access that other startup publications would have never seen and when we were being invited to the table and and the three of us we were getting invitations to you know sit we had you know an invitation to sit with the governor and talk to the governor we had an invitation for you know can you come in and do a proposal to work with you know the city on their um curriculum around cultural competence and then you know the awards were kind of shocking because we were getting awards that were really high visible awards Mm. but i think everybody had a different moment where they knew that was when we were actually doing okay and i suspect that yours probably came further because you were so hard on yourself that there was nothing anybody could have said you would have been like that's not enough it's Mm. not enough everybody wanted to pump us up and we had come off of the times, and so we already understood that that was fleeting mm. and and superficial and, frankly, very inconsistent. So we kept in mind what it would be like for when we were going to tell a story that wasn't popular mm. or that really pissed off people mm-hmm. so that we didn't have our egos all attached to how people were telling us how great we were. We were like, eh, give it time. What was the... Highest level of happiness from both for both of y'all when you guys were the happiest and you knew that you had made the right decision to work on this magazine and all of that. I mean, I 
I guess I felt like that the whole time. Okay. Like I just I felt like I was in my element, <laughs> and it was like my calling <laughs> up until the, the time I left. <laughs> I felt it was my calling. I felt it was a true gift. I felt it was what I was supposed to be doing. I was not happy at all, not for one minute. The whole time? No. Wow. Interesting. Wow. I felt all of this pride, and yet I was being gaslit at, at home and being told, you know, that I was not enough or that mm. I didn't bring anything to the table. I was, you know, or that, you know, you don't have a degree, so mm. you I don't even know why you're here. And mm. and then we would put on a happy face and we would go out and wave at the crowd and all that. Wow. And so I had this constant feeling that I was like that. What's that called? The Oprah, the Oprah factor, where I was waiting to be discovered for being, you know, like useless. Mm. And so I was always like, well, is it imposter syndrome? Imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome, yeah. And so I did feel that. But then I also felt like, you know, a lot of the ideas that I would have that would have to go through the publisher were being hindered by the interpersonal relationship of me and the publisher. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I tell people, don't ever get into business with your partner because you can never turn it off. You can mm-hmm. never That's take it is. off. Mm-hmm. You get home and you owe thousands of dollars or you got people that are pissed at you or you've got people who want to guess on both of y'all mm-hmm. or you've got mm-hmm. people who are trying to interfere with your relationship. Somebody would see me as the catch du jour and be coming at me and somebody would come at them, you know, like, you know, and. You, you end up feeling like, you know, there's never a downtime. There's never time. Even if you're going on vacation, what do you think we're talking about? On mm. the plane, mm. at the airport, when we get there, you know, what are we fighting about? What are we? It's all about how everything is there. And so I think for me, when it started to end, I felt a huge sense of relief. Mm. And I, you know, I, I, I have told people over the years, like, I was so glad when people stopped recognizing me with colors. Like, I, that wow. was a big relief. Mm. Wow. Because I just could not trust that people were actually interacting with me because they liked me or because they thought that they somehow were going to get access through colors, you know, because that was my experience was that I discovered there were a lot of hangers on. There were a lot of people that were there just for, you know, being able to get into places and go places. And then those of us that had been there from the get, well, you know, we were being pushed and pulled in every direction. So, right. no, I was not happy. Wow. Mm-hmm. When did things go south, start to go south? Minty. <laughs> <laughs> depends on who you would ask. S- sips water. Yeah, uh, depends on who you would ask. For me, as a co-founder, by 2006, I was pretty done. I was done. I was uncovering some things that that were troubling to me that I didn't know were linked to the business and they were just personal stuff and then 2007 got pretty bad when external people started to really want to get involved and then by 2008 Naomi was trying everything to figure out how to survive the 2008 economic crisis and had pretty much no support whatsoever Um, there was a lot of denial from myself and the board a lot of denial a lot of this is just going to turn itself around any moment Mm. Um, Naomi and other folks saying "Mm, it's not going to turn around so we need a different business model and all of us going what do they know 
we're the ones that are handling but like that's where you started to see the divide because we were unable to listen to the same people who we had listened to from day one all of a sudden we couldn't hear them because of our own bullshit right mm. so once we stopped listening karma has a way of being like mm, let's slow down this whole thing and then I think that it became a matter of just survival, just to try and get to the next it, uh, issue. And by 2009, it was done. Wow. And it was done with really, you know, there was no send-off. There was no, there was no closure. And the people who had put their blood, sweat, and tears were left just kind of going, what happened? Mm. So, yeah, it was a rough time. Mm. What now, I guess, is a, is a question for especially entrepreneurs who are tied to like some of some of us are doing things out of just the you know volunteer based or just things that we love like how do we navigate through toxic just masculinity how do we not become folks who are in toxic masculinity not that mm -hmm. there's not that folks are being asked to answer mm -hmm. like to educate people but yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the accountability piece is huge, right? right? Like, I think it was just sort of like accepted. And I and when I reflect on it, I'm sort of ashamed of myself. When I realized like it wasn't until this whole Me Too thing for me even, mm -hmm. where I even expected anything to ever happen to anyone. Mm -hmm. that it was just kind of like, that's just how life is. Exactly. Right? Even for me, like, a, right. you know, diehard feminist, radical thinking person, I just, assumed that was just the way the world worked. Just like men are trash and that's just yeah. how it goes. Yeah, and, and <laughs> stuff that happened to me, what can you do? That's right. just how life is. That's right. just the world. That's just the world we live in as women, uh, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And and it wasn't until this whole, you know, revolution happened that I was like, whoa, mm -hmm. how do I even get to the point where I'm so brainwashed right. that it never even occurred to me that anything could change yeah. or there could be any accountability yeah. it just wasn't even in my like consciousness mm -hmm. right. which is just shocking and yeah. just how horrifying honestly and so it's only been in the last like you know a few months or so that it ever even dawned on me that we could ask more we could actually ask more demand more mm -hmm. expect more mm -hmm. you know absolutely absolutely and i think for me it was timing because i think that you know, where you are reflects a lot in how you treat people and how you interact and how you can receive healing. And so in 2011, I bumped into Naomi right down the street at the bakery. And she was excited to see me. And I wasn't sure how to like, I wasn't sure like, do I, cause I was really excited to see her, but I had been holding on to this, like, cause I am, I'm a 9-11 Virgo. I can hold on to a grudge. <laughs> forever and <laughs> and so I wanted to hold the grudge at the same time I wanted to like grab her and like swing her around and go oh my god we survived that crazy mm. bullshit sorry I used the word again mm. I'm working on it people I'm working on it but it felt like we survived some real nasty trauma and I didn't know how to show up with that and so I kind of froze and I did like an awkward wave and and then I left the bakery and when I got to my door my job she had left her business card and said would like to catch up with you and it took me like a month because I was like I don't know what she doesn't know is being a Virgo I obsessed for a month like I'm talking to all my coworkers. like how do I I wrote like a hundred emails of like Aww. dear nay Okay, never mind, you know, and it was just like, I was like wow. over the top. And then when I did email her, 
I got a bounce back because I had the wrong email because I had lost her card by then and so I was trying to go off of off of memory mm. but then I blocked myself from looking on the internet which meant that clearly I was going through some weird and I'm shit the easiest person to check exactly the totally easy <laughs> so then cut to 2015 and I am working for the city and I go down to catch the light rail and she's there and this time I was going in for the hug like that was it whether she was ready for the hug or not I was going in and it felt like timing for me it was like I didn't appreciate you I didn't understand what we were doing in a deeper feminist level that could have been so much bigger and I missed my friend like that was true we you know once we got separated from each other it was just then about like the work and being pitted against each other and because we are really strong women and very intelligent women we were pitted against each other more like gladiators it wasn't the normal oh you know it was gaslighting and lying and mm. you know and 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 telling her that she could do something and telling me I could do something and then when we're both doing it we're both like what are you doing like it was all kinds of stuff and so I felt like as I got more healthier the way that I looked at the toxic masculinity that I had allowed and permitted mm. to make choices and decisions in my life I realized that the timing was just going to change and then a, a year ago was when our mutual friend was like oh you know I'm going to have Naomi on break dances and I was so excited mm. and so from then it, it, when she came on the show it was like old times like the first it so time it yeah. was and it's I remember so feeling like so grounded yeah. and I love my program but I felt totally grounded having her next to me and still being able to read off of her I and you, you get that relationship so rarely in business that if you find it and you don't go on it you're missing out absolutely but before you before you say this, I do want to say that I hate to tell you this, but if I were giving advice to anyone, yeah, Diana, you know I love Dominique, but <laughs> if you are going to go into a business relationship with a man, mm. everything has to be in writing and legal. I don't give a damn how much you like this brother. He is a dangler, and danglers <laughs> will dangle. <laughs> And they don't mean to. They can be like, I shall not dangle. <laughs> I resist all dangling. And yet that dangling will, happening, will happen. And you will wish that you had treated this the same way as you would treat any other business deal. Pretend like you don't know that person. I wish that I had done that. Had I, looked, had I done that, it would mm. have played itself out completely different. No, I listen. I appreciate that. And that that <laughs> will that will stay as is, right? Because I I one hundred percent agree. Yeah, one thousand percent. And you you basically answered my next question because that was going to be my question. I was like, well, how would you advise folks who were who were getting into entrepreneurship or thinking about getting into entrepreneurship to uh, to move forward? It's specifically thinking about young women. Mm -hmm. Surround yourself with women. Yeah, surround so. yourself with women who are going to tell you what you need to hear and not what you want to hear mm. yeah and I and I think like you know and I'm a journalist at heart so I'm always thinking about in, in relation to journalism but I think that you know particularly in the case of journalism we have to have an inside and outside strategy right mm -hmm. like there are cultural forces at work that are making the landscape near impossible for mm -hmm. folks to do like what we did at Colors Strong West. Mm -hmm. So it was hard when we did it. It's even harder now. Mm -hmm. So how do you change the cultural landscape? And that's going to involve having lots of conversations outside of, you know, whatever sector you're in 
to get people to think about this differently. Absolutely. And that's going to be a cultural shift and that's going to be a long time process. But I think that we need to have it and we need to be talking to people in other cities and finding out how they did it and how they have funding mechanisms because it's really the funding at the end of the day. Like, honestly, if we had all the money we needed, mm-hmm. we'd still be we here. We would be still here. That's and we amazing. wouldn't be... Voldemort wouldn't, but we right, would. We would be here. Swag, swag, and we would be swag, doing swag. great work and we'd be contributing to the, the landscape of the city. We'd be changing people's hearts and minds and doing the things that we're passionate and care about because we don't have access to those resources we're not able to do that and that is a damn shame right what projects are y'all working on now and how can people keep in touch yeah so i'm working on a bunch of different things both in terms of writing and photography for different clients both in the city and other entities and other publications that will be coming out soon but my website is naomiishisaka.com, very creative. And you can find my writing and photography and design work there. And I try to keep it pretty up to date, but don't always succeed. But yeah, I'm, I'm around. And you're on some boards? Yeah, I'm on a bunch of different boards for various purposes. And yeah, Center for Media Justice is one that I'm really excited about and passionate about and taking a lot of cool photos at a lot of cool events lots of cool photos lots of cool events lots of cool people so Mm -hmm. yeah that's really fun and um it's a real passion so i'm the co-host of breakdances with wolves indigenous pirate radio podcast with jossie ross and wesley roach um, Which is awesome. Yeah, yes. thank you. My we're, favorite podcast. We're just some natives with an opinion and a platform. I still continue to do genealogy research, and I'm working on a large project that I'm not allowed to talk about right now, but you will know about it when it comes out in a book that I'm not writing, but I'm doing the research for it. Um, this will be the third book that we have worked on together, and so I'm excited about that. I am on the board for which protects the rights of indigenous people impacted by incarceration. And I am the board chair of Heal for Reentry, which is also helping expand on and enhance Aboriginal lives impacted by incarceration. And I am on the board for Public Defender Association. And I'm a longtime board member of the University of Washington's Native American Advisory Board. Wow. So we still keep a little busy. Y'all do a job. Yeah. Listen, a I don't feel like I'm doing enough now. Right. <laughs> I also work for the Social Justice Fund as the communications director, so the, I should mention that. The director. Yeah. And I work in uh, yeah. civilian oversight. We actually oversight have like day jobs, too. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank y'all so much. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. This is Naomi Shisaka, and you're listening to No Blueprint Podcast. This is Minty Longearth, and you're listening to No Blueprint Podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to donate so we can keep going. We are on SoundCloud, iTunes, and YouTube, so be sure to subscribe, rate, and comment. You have no idea how much it helps. We also want to know what you think. You can hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and you can even use the hashtag NoBlueprint. And if you're really down with the movement, you can join our Patreon account and become a patron, where you'll get exclusive content and limited edition merchandise. No Blueprint is powered by Ambassador Stories. We share stories of the people, places, and spaces that bring soul to our communities. No Blueprint is recorded at Ambassador Stories Studios and co-produced with me, Maya Aina. Hear more episodes of No Blueprint and get official No Blueprint merchandise at noblueprintpodcast.com.